Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Well, something is brewing at Pete's Coffee and Tea in North Davis, and it's not just the beverages, it's unionization. We've seen more workers take an interest in labor organizing over the past few years, from Amazon to Starbucks, fighting for better pay and conditions. Pete's Coffee was originally founded in Berkeley and has grown to become the second largest coffee chain in the country, only second to Starbucks. And now, like some Starbucks locations, its stores have begun to unionize. The Pete's location in Davis is the first store to do so, with others interested in following suit. So to tell us more about Pete's Workers United is Cap Radio Sacramento Communities reporter Janelle Salanga. Good morning, Janelle. Good morning, Vicki. Was I correct in that Pete's Coffee was actually the second largest coffee change in the country, or is it in California? It's in California, but what's kind of cool is that um, Pete's actually inspired Starbucks and came before it. So, yeah, yeah, that is an important correction. So it is still just a, a really large coffee chain in the state. And according to Forbes, you know, this follows a similar trend because more than 250 Starbucks locations have unionized, and that's just as of last year. And that is a sign that labor movements are growing. But this is the first Pete's Coffee to unionize. What prompted this unionization of this location in North Davis? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, this location in North Davis is arguably one of the most popular ones in the city. I mean, there's a couple of Davis, um, Pete's on the Davis campus, but this is um, a Pete's that's really close to a residential area. There's a lot of apartment complexes next to it. Um, I actually, when I was um, going to UC Davis, my apartment complex was right next to this Pete's. So they have a steady stream of customers. They have a lot of regulars. And so you know, as the pandemic hit, obviously those orders grew as everybody was staying home. A lot of mobile orders were coming in and things like that. And workers just felt like they were being asked to do an increasingly high amount of work, you know, for one person, two Pete standards without being paid um, enough for that work. And so workers are saying, you know, they've only gotten 10 cent or 50 cent raises amid the ongoing pandemic and, you know, rising inflation. But other factors include, you know, just the physical toll of the job. So barista Trinity Salazar has been working in coffee shops and cafes for over three years. And though they just started at the North Davis Pete's last summer, uh, they're a full-time student at UC Davis and now deal with kind of chronic lower back pain that they've developed through work. So while they love, you know, working in coffee, they're also hoping to see better training and more understanding around health issues. You're bending over, you're getting milk, you're talking to someone. You're doing a mobile order while talking to a customer while making a drink. It's like we have to froth milk. Why am I burning my hands on the milk? Why is this normalized? Like me burning my hand. Why am I like sick and I'm still going to work? Why am I not granted more time to feel better? They make it hard for you to take care of yourself. And I think what I really would want is like more normalization of hey, maybe you shouldn't be picking up that box like that. Or like just more awareness of things that are part of the job. Right. And Janelle, I mean, you know this very well. About a month ago, there was a strike across UC campuses, including UC Davis. And that wrapped up the end of December. It was the largest higher education strike in the U- in U.S. history. Now, given this was just a few weeks ago, did this shape or impact the Pete's Coffee Union organizers in Davis? Well, it certainly provided a lot of solidarity. Um, there were a lot of, you know, UAW um, 
members present at the solidarity rally that Pete's baristas held on Saturday. Um, there was even a UAW member who was part of the speaker lineup. So uh, certainly while they um, maybe didn't provide, you know, a super direct influence, it's definitely um, the two kind of union or labor movement um Activities happening kind of um, coincidentally at the same time uh, provided solidarity for both of um, both of the groups involved. Yeah, there's the timeliness of it. And, you know, we just were talking about how there are over 200 Starbucks locations that have unionized. And given is this are these all isolated incidents or are these is this part of a bigger trend, basically, of unionization across the country? And how does it compare to the labor movement in the 1950s, which was the peak, correct? Yeah. So in 1954, about 35 percent of wage workers in the United States were part of a union. So that was the peak in the country. Um, and actually, it's kind of nuanced in that the upsurge in union elections and labor organizing masks this kind of steady decline in union unionization. So right now, uh, a little over 10 percent of wage workers in the states are in unions. But I feel like that's kind of counterbalanced by the fact that, um, you know, over 70 percent of Americans right now approve of unions as of last year. And that's the highest rate of approval for unions since 1965. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the pandemic has kind of spurred a lot of interest in unions for workers to have a voice, to have a say in their working conditions and their wages. Yeah, I think uh, it's safe to say the pandemic uprooted or even dismantled our culture surrounding work and people have beginning have begun to think about, you know, um, work-life balance and what they want from their employer. So what role has the past couple of years had on this recent push to unionize? Right. So I spoke to labor historian and Sacramento State professor Dr. Maria Quintana, and she said it completely makes sense that workers are organizing right now. Here she is. Workers found that the ball is now in their court, right, as their labor is in high demand and and not easy to replace. Um, Also, we see soaring company profits uh, and those profits aren't trickling down to workers, right? There wasn't there weren't any huge wage increases. So it's not that there's Uh, a shortage of people willing to work today, but that there is a shortage of safe, good paying and sustainable jobs. Uh, So this is really the moment, I think, for workers around the country to keep organizing across race and gender lines and really putting their demands on corporations that have profited at enormous levels and enormous scales since the pandemic, right? Worsening the wealth gap. All right. So let's get to this Pete's location in North Davis. Um, They got the votes. They are unionizing. But that's just the first big step. What is in store for them? And what did the workers tell you? Yeah. So workers said that, you know, this is the next step is for them to kind of draft demands for Pete's to meet the company at the bargaining table to hammer out, you know, a union contract. And that's something that could actually be a really lengthy process. So, for example, um, Starbucks Workers United formed in December 2021, but the union still doesn't have a contract with Starbucks. 
Oh, so they're at, and we're now in 2023. So when it comes to Pete's Coffee, the actual employer, did they respond to the vote of unionizing at this one location in North Davis? Yeah. So they told Cap Radio in a statement that while they were hoping for a different outcome, they are respecting workers' choice to unionize and plan to follow the legally required next steps, which is, you know, meeting the workers at the bargaining table. But, you know, some workers say that the management has responded by becoming stricter, you know, cracking down on policies. They've discussed removing decorations from the store like these barista-grown plants um, that have been a fixture of that specific store's decor for over the two years. And Alex Land is a barista who's been working for the company since 2017. He transferred to the North Davis location around two and a half years ago. And here's what he has to say about the response. Unionize. We already started seeing changes with the way that we were treated. We had corporate people coming into the store all the time, having one-on-one conversations with people, talking about, you know, their personal experience, about how unions are going to make everything bad and different. Um, We've already started to have, you know, all of the policies have been completely tightened up. Like, we're we're starting to sign documents um, about, like, uh, all of the Pete's policies that they haven't even really enforced before suddenly like this big deal thing where we're going to get written up. That's something that moving forward, I really want everyone to be very like watching Pete and how they respond to this. Right, Janelle, and the company did added it added more in its statement, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, besides that, you know, the, the company said that the unionization process and talking to employees led them to see that, you know, quote unquote, some stores were not up to its standards. And so those include consistent signage, decor and presentation across stores. So given that this isn't an isolated case, were you able to get um, some bigger context about the tactics that companies may use to dissuade workers from unionizing? Right. So I spoke with Ken Jacobs, who's the chair of UC Berkeley's Labor Center, and he said that some tactics that companies might use include things like firing uh, union leaders under the guise of some other excuse, which is illegal, uh, or delaying bargaining talks or union votes, or saying things like we don't want a third party getting between workers and the bosses, which is a little bit redundant because, you know, he pointed out that workers are the union. So it's not really a third party. It is, you know, the union. Right. Um, There's also an argument that, you know, you found this with that Ken Jacobs with UC Berkeley's Labor Center, that a union doesn't guarantee higher wages. Is that actually the case? Well, some of his research with another um, another researcher at the Labor Center, Sarah Thomason, uh, found that that's untrue. Um, Through bargaining with unions, California workers earn on average um, five over over 5,000 more per worker annually. Hmm. When it comes to this one Pete's location, is it just one or are other locations interested in unionizing? Yeah. So actually, you know, in 2021, workers at one of the Change Chicago locations walked out on the job to protest working conditions, but that didn't lead to end up materializing in a union vote. And actually, you know, also in Davis, the downtown Davis Pete's actually filed a petition to unionize at the same time as the North Davis location, but withdrew a week before the vote. So SEIU Local 1021, which represents Pete's Workers United, said that that downtown Davis location will try to vote again on union unionization in six months, which is the minimum time that you have to wait to, you know, refile an election if you withdraw it. And there are other Northern California locations that have approached the union with interest in organizing, including some locations in Berkeley, which is where Pete started, and in Sacramento. 
some more reporting for you, more for you to follow. Yeah, definitely. It's an ongoing story. Uh, right now, baristas, you know, have been asking for community support if uh, folks uh, order drinks with the name Pete Union Strong or Pete Union Yes. And so they actually made that ask in advance of Saturday's community support rally. But certainly, you know, a very... Uh, it's a very developing story. Lots more to follow, like you said, Vicky. As always, Janelle, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Vicky. Janelle Salonga is Cap Radio Sacramento Communities reporter sharing their reporting on the unionization of Pete's Coffee in North Davis. Up next, new research explains why California's winter storms will be larger and drop even more rain than the storms we experienced this winter and how we can better prepare for them. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. 32 trillion gallons, that's the estimated amount of rain and snow that came down on California in a three-week span from a series of nine atmospheric rivers in December and January. Now, to put that in perspective, that amount is just shy of Lake Tahoe, one of the deepest lakes in North America, which has on average about 37 trillion gallons of water. But these storms were also destructive and deadly, claiming the lives of at least 20 people, and the estimated cost is likely to end up being in billions of dollars. And new research is revealing these storms will likely become larger and drop even more rain than what we experience so far this winter. So joining us to discuss what this means for Californians and how we can prepare for more of these intense storms is Dr. Ruby Leung, an atmospheric scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Washington State. Dr. Leung, welcome to Insight. Good morning. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for making the time. It is a very topical conversation to have, given <laughs> everything that we have went through in the in the first few weeks of the year. You know, tell us more about first the laboratory, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and the research that you and your colleagues do. Yes. Um, so my name is Ruby Leung, first of all, and I am a climate scientist at the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and we are located in Washington State. Um, I work with my colleagues and we, as a climate scientist, we like to study how climate change may be affecting the weather. We use uh, computer models, we use data to study climate change. But particularly for me, I'm very interested in understanding how climate change may be affecting extreme weather events like hurricanes, atmospheric rivers, thunderstorms in general. Right. So these extreme weather events are really important because they often produce very strong winds, sometimes damaging winds, but also importantly, they produce heavy precipitation that can cause flooding. Right. And, and the research that you do also involves a lot of collaborations. I mean, you organize workshops sponsored by the Department of Energy, the National Science Foundation, NOAA, even NASA. You know, talk to us about the conversations that you're having on this larger federal level when it comes to preparing for a future of climate extremes. 
Yes, climate change, um, as we know, is already happening, and we expect climate change to happen in the future. And so this is a, a really big challenge that requires not just individuals to, to be working on the problem. So we work with collaboratively across many government agencies, working with many scientists in the community. We build the tools that we need in order to project how the future may look like. And so this is why we often organize workshops, uh, we have meetings, and uh, we collaborate on developing tools and, th and things like that. Given that this research that you recently conducted, it suggests that powerful winter storms impacting California, they're only becoming wetter and larger. Can you put into context how much larger and wetter future storms could be compared to the series of very powerful storms that we just experienced this month? Mm -hmm. Yes. So as I said, um, we use computer models to project the future, right? So our simulations in particular, we go to very high resolution so that we can look at storms particularly. So we count the storms and we look at how they look like, how big they are, and that's how we can summarize how the storms will be changing in the future. So what we found, we particularly looking at the western United States where most of our storms are coming in the winter, right? So most of our precipitation come during the uh, December, January, February. And so what we found is that overall, per storm on average, we ex uh, we see that the precipitation amount will be increasing by about 30%. And this increase of the 30% in the precipitation amount comes from two factors. Number one, the storm will become bigger. And on average, we find that the storm area will be increasing by about 22%. But also importantly, not only that the storms are getting bigger, they are also producing more intense precipitation. On average, we see that the precipitation will increase by 9% in terms of the intensity. But very interestingly, what we found in this study is that the precipitation increase is not uniform within the storm. What will happen in the future is that usually we see that the um, storm produces more precipitation near the center of the storm. And this is where we see even much larger increase of precipitation in the future. So near the center of the storm, we find that the precipitation will increase by about 19 percent, 19 to 20 percent. So this is what we call the storm will be sharpening. So by that, we mean that not only the area will increase, but the precipitation will be more concentrated towards the center of the storm, which can cause a lot of problems from both perspective of larger area and more concentrated precipitation. Given that you are looking at, you know, more broadly, the western United States, where does California stand in this in terms of the intensity of these storms? Yeah, so when we look at the western United States, we look separately in three different regions. The Pacific Northwest, including like Washington State and Oregon, and then we look at California particularly, and also look at the southwestern United States. What we see very interesting is that California is the place where you see you you often get more precipitation, <laughs> winter precipitation than other states. And then looking at the future, the sharpening 
is even more in California compared to other states, meaning that the precipitation produced by the storms will be even more concentrated towards the center compared to uh, the Pacific Northwest or the southwestern United States. Why is that? Yeah, partly the reason is that California has a very interesting geography, right? So we all know Sierra Nevada mountain. So this mountain is really squeezing out a lot of water vapor from the atmosphere. And and so often we see a lot of precipitation when the storms arrive and then they produce uh, precipitation because of the mountain. And Sierra Nevada is very narrow. And, and so it causes very sharp rising air and therefore the storms are more sharper. And in the future, because we often talk about like global warming, and this is in terms of temperature. But what is important to know is that with warmer temperature, you also get more moisture in the atmosphere, just like when you go to the tropics, you feel like, oh, this is really moist. So same way in under global warming in the future, we expect more moisture, and therefore it will dump more precipitation and more concentrated because of the narrow mountain. As opposed to historically relying on a snowpack, correct? Yes, yeah, historically, we um, all rely on the snowpack to uh, give us the, pre- uh, the water supply, and not only in the winter time, but when the snowpack melt in the spring and in the, in the summer, that's when we can also get the water to irrigate our crops in the summer. So, so in the future, the two po- big problem is that number one, not only that we would expect the precipitation to increase and more concentrated near the center, but because of the warmer temperature, these the precipitation will be more like rain rather than accumulate in this mount in the mountain like snowpack. So we would probably be getting less snowpack that would produce the water that we need in the summertime. I would imagine then that leads to water managers having uh, having conversations about how to adjust to to this new normal for managing higher levels of forecasted precipitation as opposed to historically relying on snowpack, which melts in the drier months. Exactly, yes, because this is like double whammy, right? Number one, during the winter time, when you have a lot of precipitation, they become more intense, causing flooding because they are not falling as snowfall. Right? And then the second part, the second problem is that because they are falling more as rain rather than snow and you don't get enough snowpack for melting to provide the water in the summer. So this is really difficult for water managers. Like how do you manage flood in the wintertime and then not enough water in the summertime? Right. You know, given that we're having this conversation as we have a very healthy snowpack in the Sierra, you know, you also have research into the conditions that create a healthy snowpack in Northern California. What are the ideal factors? Yeah, the ideal factor for creating a a good snowpack is, of course, we need to have precipitation. Right. But also the temperature is important because if the if the precipitation comes in with warmer temperature, then they would basically be rainfall and they will and the water will go to the to to, to the river um, more immediately. So you you need both factor precipitation and temperature. Mm. Given that you have researched climate variability along with climate extremes, you know, for years, how has your research evolved and even become perhaps even more challenged throughout your career or interesting? 
Yeah, well, I would say, yeah, both more challenging and more interesting. Yeah, because when we look at um, climate change, um, now we have the ability to use what we call climate models, which are computer models that we use to project how the future look like. We are fortunate that we have now bigger and bigger computers. So we are able to run these climate models at higher and higher resolution so that we can actually look at thunderstorms, not just like looking at smear out kind of precipitation. Right. So that gets interesting because this allows us to look at how thunderstorms may be changing in terms of the different characteristics like the size, the intensity, and and where the uh, the thunderstorm will happen and all of these. So that's the interesting part. But of course, uh, it's also very challenging because even if we have big computers now, it, we often say it's still not big enough <laughs> because we wanted our climate models to be able to get to higher and higher resolution so that we can provide even more specific information or more local information that stakeholders can make use of. Um, like, for example, when we were talking about water resource managers, they definitely wanted to know more specific information about their own watershed, right? So, so we often want to get even bigger computers so that we can better resolve these thunderstorms. When it comes to water managers, how do you hope this research and other just advances in climate modeling, you know, bigger and bigger technology to forecast, will actually help improve and may help improve and help those who design and really maintain water infrastructure in California. Yeah, so this really also depends on the communication, right? So even if we have big computers, we can run a lot of these climate projections of the future. The important part is we need to work with the water managers to understand what better information we can provide, as well as for the water managers to understand how they might better make use of the information that we can provide. So I think the two-way streets um, between scientists and stakeholders such as water managers is really important. Hmm. We're talking about this within the bigger conversation of global warming as well as climate change, but are there other factors that are contributing to these forecasted more intense storms that isn't kind of rising to the top of the conversation that you think needs to be discussed more? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I, I have to emphasize that, yes, global warming is one of the biggest factors because global warming affects every, everyone and everywhere. It's not like only in California or any particular location. But also, as you said, besides global warming or climate change, there are also other factors like, for uh, like for example, land use change. You know, when we um, cut off the tree uh, uh, and, and also turn certain forest area into cropland area. So all these changes can, uh, and also urbanization as well, right? So when we have more urban areas, that can also cause changes like uh, the temperature, uh, more uh, heat. Uh, so all of these factors we do consider when we look at the future. Yeah. I mean, we have also witnessed, you know, some of the most deadly and destructive wildfires in recent years as well. And we're talking Mm. about powerful winter storms, but we also have drought conditions across the state for for several years and counting. What impact will these climate changes, you know, these more concentrated storms and precipitation and warmer systems have on the state's drought conditions as well as the threat of wildfires? 
Yeah, so even though we are talking about storms getting wetter, producing more precipitation than one might think, ah, maybe this is good, right? So so then we have more moist condition and we may not have as many wildfires in the future. But unfortunately, I also mentioned that if the storms are producing more rain rather than snow, and so you don't have enough snowpack in the mountain to melt for the water in the summer. So essentially, the summer can still be very mm -hmm. warm and and dry uh, in the future. And so this doesn't really help us very much in terms of uh, wildfires. In fact, we also perform research and use our climate models to project how wildfires will change in the future. And unfortunately, we are also seeing that climate change will most likely be increasing wildfires in the future because of the warmer temperature, increasing the evaporation of moisture from the land, and therefore causing drier conditions. Mm. Are there other impacts that these storms could have on California, impacts that may be overlooked or not talked about enough? Um, definitely storms, are number one big important factor, wildfires drought. I mean, you, you already mentioned that. So I think these are the three uh, biggest factors, but also, of course, temperature, right? I mean, when we talk about global warming, it's always about temperature. And so potentially heat wave um, and or extreme temperature can also become uh, a, an important factor, especially in urban location. Yeah, given that we're talking about challenges and threats that powerful storms can pose, and a lot of people have endured that just this month alone, is there a silver lining to all of this? Um, I would say that uh, when we look at the future, we have to use scenarios, right? So we, we will have to assume like, okay, in the future, we have these greenhouse gases increasing, but there are these scenarios and we do use a scenario that is uh, that is assuming more emission of greenhouse gases, what we call business as usual scenario. Like we would be uh, using similar energy technology and, and, and things like that. But the silver lining is that the changes that we are talking about for the weather storms, it really depends on the temperature in the future. So the question is, can we limit the warming in the future, right? So there are ways that we can limit that by reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases. So I would say that a silver lining is that there's something we can, we can do about it because the weather storms really depends on how much warming we are going to experience in the future. Yeah, and you also note in your research that these findings, they arrive at a time when the world is struggling to keep its goal that was set at the 2015 Paris Agreement, and that is, as, as we were just talking about, to limit global warming to less than two degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. And with each degree increase brings with it the likelihood of more extreme weather. So what gives you hope that global warming can be slowed? Um, definitely, we need international co uh, cooperation, <clears throat> right? Because this is global warming. So all the emissions count. Because um, Unfortunately, for greenhouse gases, they have very long lifetime. So once we emit the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it lasts for a long time. So cumulatively, as well as integrating over the whole world, so, so every part count. Um, so I, I still have hope that um, international cooperation to um, reduce emissions, every reduction matters. Yeah. Given that we're talking specifically about the, the West Coast and we're honing in on California, looking across the country, are you seeing increased rain or severity of storms in other parts of the United States? 
Uh, definitely, yeah. In fact, we have also looked at uh, data, not only projecting the future, but looking at data from the past to see whether storms might have changed. And one of our studies show that over the central United States, well, they have different kinds of storms. Their storms don't come in the wintertime like the storms that we have in the western United States. Their storms are mostly in the warm season, like in the spring and in the summer. What we found is that based on data in the last few decades, the storms have already been changing over that part of our country country where the warm season or summer storms have already been lasting longer and producing more extreme precipitation as well. What would you like listeners to take away from your research? Yeah, so I, I like um, the listeners to, to know that while well, we have these projections that are useful for planning in the future and, and that this kind of information can be used when we think about um, how we, we might uh, limit the emissions in the in the future, as well as how we might manage resources to better adapt to, to future changes. What can we do at an individual level? What advice do you have when it comes to being best prepared for, for what you are forecasting future stronger winter storms? Yes, I think individually, I mean, um, definitely Changing storms will affect our life, but having the knowledge that the storms will change can help us better prepare. Uh, so at both the individual level, but also, of course, at the level of water managers, right? So agencies and, and managers who can better plan for uh, how to manage the reservoir. I mean, there's something, certain level of um, work that we can do in order to manage the reservoir in a better way. Mm. Finally, Dr. Leong, when you first started your career in into studying the climate, did you envision that you would be here now having this conversation? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> in fact, um, I started um, working on climate uh, a few decades, what two, two, three decades now, and and definitely we try very hard to produce climate models and and we try to produce. Um, predict the future or project the future. But our climate models in the past were so coarse resolution that we wouldn't be able to say anything about like thunderstorms. <laughs> but uh, we are very happy that now with the technology uh, changing with bigger computers and our better understanding of the climate system, we are now at this stage where we can look at things that we weren't able to look at before like thunderstorms. Dr. Leung, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, yeah, for having me. Ruby Leong is an atmospheric scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, which is located in Washington state, explaining her new research about how winter storms in California will be wetter and more powerful in the future. Still ahead, we will speak with Benji Eagle, the SACB's food and beverage reporter, about Black-owned restaurants to visit and try in Sacramento in honor of Black History Month. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Black History Month begins tomorrow, and as we reflect and celebrate the contributions by Black and African Americans, what better way to do so than sample some of the best Black-owned restaurants across Sacramento, a restaurant scene that has evolved and grown in recent years, shaped by racial and social justice. Joining us is Benji Eagle, food and beverage reporter for the Sac B, with a taste of Black-owned restaurants well-deserving of recognition and what he recommends trying 
Good morning, Benji. Hi, Vicky. This is a fun segment. So we are excited to hear your recommendations. We have a nice sampler across uh, Sacramento and just a few of the many to try. But when it comes to black and African-American restaurants to try, is there a definition for what black food is? Not really, or at least it's a little unclear. Um, you know, it, it can be a little controversial, but I would say that black food is anything that, you know, has the heart and soul of black people in it. And so, you know, that could be everything from uh, a restaurant that's takes that serves African food to a barbecue restaurant to soul food to, uh, you know, something that crosses the borders there, you know, and mixes things up. I think that you know, certain people have sort of ideas of what black food should be or could be. But I think that, you know, as long as the chef and owner come from that background and they're really, you know, putting their heart and soul into it, it can be sort of anything. Given that you have been following restaurants around for, for years or decades, you are a Sacramento native, right? How has the restaurant scene when it comes to black owned businesses changed in just recent years? It's really evolved of the, over the last few years. I tagged along with a community activist, Barry Axius, in 2019, and he had a goal to only eat out at black owned restaurants in February. And he was only, you know, and he was eating out every single day at these restaurants. And part of the point was support was to support Black-owned businesses, but it was also to raise awareness for how few Black-owned restaurants there were because he kept repeating the same, you know, 12 or 14 places. And in the three or four years since that, there has been a lot of growth. I can think of about a dozen new Black-owned restaurants that have opened around Sacramento, and they're serving all kinds of food. You know, you have African food, you have soul food, you have high-end restaurants that are Black-owned. You really have a lot going on. Um, So I think that's been some good growth. I think that there's still a lot of room for more restaurants to enter the scene. But I think that there's there's been some progress over the last few years in that regard. And this also comes at a time of calls for racial and social justice. I mean, we're having this conversation at a time when, as a country, we are once again witnessing traumatic police violence. Tyree Nichols, who's from Sacramento, was beaten to death by police in Memphis. Those officers are now charged with second-degree murder. And we don't have to go that far back to remember the protests across the country and in Sacramento following the murder of George Floyd. How do you think these moments kind of changed the way people thought or supported Black-owned restaurants? I think black people were already interested prior to the George Floyd murder uh, in supporting black owned businesses and black owned restaurants. But I think that that murder and the protests that followed really opened the eyes of a lot of other people to systemic racism, to things that black people deal with today and that they wanted to uh, support and, you know, to to, uh, be on the right side, I guess, you know, and so they wanted to go out and support black owned businesses after that. I remember talking to Najina Goyton, who owned South at the time. Uh, she said that, you know, in June, particularly around Juneteenth of 2020, her restaurant was busier than it had ever been. They were just slammed. I also think that Najina would say that, you know, that's great and it's great to support black owned restaurants in February. But they need that support year round as well, too. Yeah, there's 12 months in a year, right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so let's get to your selection. And this is just a few uh, of really great eats to try. Let's start off with Nash and Proper. Uh, There are, they have a dedicated following of people who followed the food truck around what started as a food truck. Now there's a brick and mortar. But it was part of the Calling All Dreamers competition. What do you love about Nash and Proper? You know, there's a lot of restaurants serving hot chicken around Sacramento. 
I think Nash and Proper is the most popular one, and I think they're the best one too. I also love that they have a cauliflower option that's pretty good for you know people who don't eat chicken, and that they're willing to push the boundaries. They did something with like a hot chicken and vanilla ice cream sandwich, <laughs> which I have to admit wasn't for me, but I love that they're like trying new things like a that, for pushing exactly pushing the envelope. Yeah. Okay, so when it comes to Nashville style fried chicken, it just seems like it's gotten a lot of hype over the years. What makes it so special? There, it's not just a hot sauce on some chicken. You know, there's a rub that they put on it, and you know, then you have is the chicken cooked well enough? How's the crispiness of the batter? You know, on the outside, I think it's something that you can do cheaply and quickly, and not that well pretty easily. But Nash and Proper really puts in a lot of time and care into the, uh, you know, their spice rub and, um, you know, how good it is really. Um, so I think that they. They stand out for that in my eyes, at least. All right. We're going to travel like 15, 20 minutes into Placer <laughs> County and go to Roseville. So that's Q1227. And that's described as modern comfort food. And it's by Quentin Chef Q Bennett. And 1227 is the day that that restaurant opened, correct? That's why it's named that? That's right. It's also his birthday. Oh, it's also his birthday. <laughs> so it features some Southern recipes, but a more elevated menu. Give us a kind of like a palate tour of this restaurant for people who haven't actually tried it. So something that you know stands out when I look at their menu is they have jambalaya, as a lot of Southern restaurants do, but they're loading it up with a million different things. There are crab legs in there, you know, and so they're attaching a higher price point to it. But you know, it's they're putting in a lot of things that would justify that higher price point. They also have these market price seafood baskets. I got one, and it was you know north of two hundred dollars, but it was for you know to share between three or four or five people, and it's just kind of decadent, opulent, you know, shellfish and uh, bites of this and bites of that. And, you know, it's, it's really an elevated concept. Uh, chef Q also, you know, to his knowledge, he's the only black chef owner in Placer County. So I think there's been a lot of support for him, uh, both for his food and for people wanting to support a black owned restaurant out there. What is his culinary story here in Sacramento or the greater Sacramento area? Sure. He was the chef at Echo and Rig near uh, Golden One Center in downtown Sacramento. And so it's funny, if you walk to the bathroom in Q1227 now, you'll see a million photos of him with celebrities, a lot of basketball players who are going to play games at Golden One Center. Or, uh, you know, he did a lot of private dining cooking as well. So he's got tons of photos with actors and actresses and whoever it is. Uh, So, yeah, he's definitely rubbing shoulders with the stars. So this one I haven't heard of, and I'm really excited to learn about it. It's Niger Boy Tacos. And that's it's a pretty interesting concept. Nigerian food, but also as a taco or torta. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's owned by Rashid Amedu, whose parents immigrated to Chicago from Nigeria. And then he moved out to Sacramento as an adult, cooked around a few restaurants around town. He was a sous chef at Urban Roots, another black owned restaurant here in town. And then he opened his own place, and it's sort of a blend of his Nigerian roots with Calimex cooking. Mm -hmm. So one thing that stands out to me is they have a milanesa, which is kind of a more typical Mexican dish, but they've coated it in this spice called suya that's kind of smoky, spicy. It comes with a little mixture of a goosey mole verde. Mole verde is, you know, a green Mexican sauce, but a goosey is a melon seed stew from Nigeria. So he's really getting outside the box. He's really inventive. I think there's nothing else like this in the U.S. as a whole. Yeah, that is so interesting. I mean, what stands out to you about this type of fusion? Um, 
You know, I think that Calimex or Tex-Mex cooking can get a little bit of a bad rap. People associate it with chilies and, you know, Chevys and places like that. But it's part of, you know, what we eat every day, whether we realize it or not. And Rashid is taking his own background and kind of infusing that into this, you know, celebrate into this history of Cali Mex cooking that got us things like the mission style burrito, you know, mm-hmm. that came out of San Francisco. So I think that he's really this is a personal restaurant for him. I, it's also worth noting that, you know, that'll be there in sort of its open air concept for about a year. And then he's planning to move it maybe somewhere else and open a uh, more sit down little fancier restaurant uh, that's going to serve Nigerian food as well. Awesome. Well, let's head to Arden Arcade, where there's an Ethiopian restaurant, Abyssina. I actually tried it after I read your list of restaurants to try in Sacramento. Uh, It's been around for a little over a decade in 2012. Uh, What do you talk to us about this restaurant's ability to really thrive for over a decade now? Yeah, you know, Fulton Avenue, where Abyssinia is, is kind of, I think, an underrated uh, destination for eats from different countries. And Abyssinia is one of the best ones out there. It's a pretty traditional Ethiopian restaurant. They make injera, that spongy, kind of tangy bread in-house. And, you know, my favorite thing to do there is just go with one or two people and get sort of a sampler platter of all these different stews. And uh, some of them are meat. A lot of them are vegetarian, you know, and just mop up with the injera some dorowa, which is like a spicy chicken stew, or kifte, which is um, this like rare beef uh, thing, you know, stew. Um and, you know, it, there's it's pretty traditional on the inside. It's run by Elfinesh Berry, who's the owner as well. Um, and I think it's just really flavorful, well-spiced food. You can get a glass of honey wine called Tej while you're there as well. Um, <laughs> It's a really nice time. Yeah, yeah, I did the same thing. I brought some friends and we we sampled a lot of food. For for someone who hasn't had Ethiopian food, how do you describe it? It's flavorful. It's not some some things are spicy, but it's not typically super duper spicy, I'd say. Um, you know, there a lot of Ethiopians practice a form of orthodox Christianity that requires them to abstain from eating meat for many days out of the year. And so there are really a lot of great vegan and vegetarian dishes baked into the culture. Um, yeah. So it can be an underrated destination. For Without even realizing that it's vegan. Yeah, You know, because it's, it's, it's so good. So, yeah. okay, last but not least, of course, is Colo Soul Food, and that used to be located in the Oak Park neighborhood as Cora Lorraine Soul Food, but it moved to North Sacramento. Why is this a much must-try soul food spot in Sacramento? I completely agree. I've been there. I've had their, their smothered deep-fried pork chop. It is just incredible. But what do you love about Colo's? You know, it really tastes to me like what Southern down-home soul food should be. Um, Tamar McCree, who owns it with her husband, Kevin, she's from Louisiana originally. They met in Oakland, um, and they moved out here and just really, you know, added something to the Sacramento culinary scene. Their, sp- their spot in Oak Park was really just a stand. You got your food to go and got out of there, and they've created sort of more of a, a sit-down environment there on Del Paso Boulevard now uh, with things like, uh, you know, shrimp and grits or fried chicken and, you know, really homey stick to your ribs kind of stuff that 
tastes great, in my opinion. Yeah, and they opened just before the pandemic. And so they really went through it, you know, when opening up a, a business in a restaurant. And now they are growing in ways with, like, music. And also they have comedians. Like, talk to us about how their dining experience has evolved in recent years. Yeah, so when they were in Oak Park, you know, as I said, they you sort of just grabbed your food and went. And when they opened the full restaurant, they really wanted to be a place where people, especially black people or people interested in black culture, could come and celebrate that. So they have a lot of live music. They have dancing. They have comedians. You know, they want to be a community space there on Del Paso Boulevard. They've also, you know, they've been open for three or four years now, which is longer than a lot of restaurants make it. They really had some troubles getting going. I mean, Kevin, you know, was hospitalized. He almost lost a few fingers of his through some accidents and getting the restaurants up and running. Um, and, you know, they're fighters. They really stuck it out there and built something for themselves. So I'm and, happy to go there. And a beloved piece in that neighborhood, too. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Benji, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that is Benji Eagle, the food and beverage reporter for the Sacramento Bee, discussing his selections for Black-owned restaurants to try. That is it for Insight Today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to join the conversation, you can email us, insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones, and our engineer is Antonio Munez. Our show Music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.